0: Chapter Eleven of Wulf the Saxon by George Alfred Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The secret passage. Beorn called his men together and distributed them along the rear wall, while Wulf made a fresh examination of the front. He had before noticed that great piles of stone, in blocks from fifty to a hundred pounds in weight were piled along by the parapet, in readiness to hurl down upon any foe attempting to ascend the road, while in the courtyard below was an immense reserve of these missiles. He placed twenty of his men here, and posted the other ten as sentries on the side walls, and then went down through the passage to Osgod. The bridge was entirely demolished as he had directed, with the exception of a single plank which could be thrown over in a moment. Osgod had closed the gate, and had fastened a rope from the top of the turret to the plank, so that this could be hauled up without those engaged in the operation being exposed to missiles from the other side of the chasm. One feels almost ashamed at being so safe, Osgod said, as Wolf joined him on the turret. It does not give one the chance of a fight. You have had one good fight to-day, Osgod, and can do without another. I should be glad if we did not have to strike a blow till we see Girth's banner coming down the valley. We have done very well, Osgod agreed, and I should be quite contented if I had but come across that rascal who nearly smothered me in the bog. You need not bear malice against him, Osgod, for if he had not deserted us, and led the Wellands force away to the spot where he left us, we should not be masters of the place at present and it would have been a terrible business had we been obliged to take this stronghold by storm. That's true enough, master, except by hunger or by surprise, such as we carried out, I don't see how the place is to be taken if stoutly defended. There is no reason why the Welsh should have been in such a hurry to return, for they must know as well as we do there is but little chance of their getting in again. They have come to a halt now down there, and half of them have thrown themselves on the ground like a pack of tired hounds. I have no fear whatever of an open attack, Osgod. They can see for themselves that the bridge is destroyed, and I do not think they will dream of coming up that road, which, as they know, we can sweep with stones from above. If they attack openly at all, it will be by the wall we scaled. If they make twenty ladders, such as we had, they may think might gain a footing especially as their archers high among the trees would be able to fire down on the defenders of the wall but what i am really afraid of is that there may be some secret passage do you think so osgood said startled where could it come from well osgood you see they have cut this winding road up the rock and have made the tunnel hence to the courtyard so the chiefs have an abundance of labour at their disposal they would naturally wish to provide a means of escape if the castle were besieged and like to fall by force or famine. Moreover, it would enable them to send out messengers or receive messages from without. A passage four feet high and two feet wide would suffice. They may have driven such a passage from some place in the wood behind, and it may come up somewhere in the courtyard, perhaps in one of the little huts along the side. Of course, the entrance would be covered here by a stone. And would be hidden among the bushes at the other end. Still, I do not think that this is likely, for a hostile force would almost certainly take up its post in that wood, and attack the place in the rear. If there is such a passage, I think that it must open somewhere on the face of the rock, on one side or the other. It looks to us almost perpendicular, but there may be inequalities by which active men might ascend at some point or other. For a considerable distance we could see that there were tufts of shrubs growing here and there, and one of these may conceal a small opening. From this point a staircase may have been driven up into the castle. That would be very awkward, master, if it were so. It would indeed. Tonight all the force except the sentries shall gather in the castle, where ten men by turns shall keep guard, one or two being placed in the lower chambers. In this way we shall be safe for before more than three or four can enter, we should all be on foot, and as they can but come up in single file, could repulse them without difficulty. Tomorrow we will lower men down with ropes from the walls, and examine every clump of bushes growing on the face of the rock. If we find any signs of a path or entrance, we shall have no difficulty in discovering where it enters into the castle, and can effectually block it up. I shall then feel much more comfortable than I do at present. I was looking forward to a good night's sleep, Osgod grumbled. But your idea, master, has quite done away with that. If I went off I should dream that I had one of those Welsh wolves at my throat. However, it is a good thing that you thought of it. I think, my lord, one of the soldiers said, there are a number of our men among the Welsh. I can make out helmets and shields, and I think many are clad in leather jerkins." Wolfe looked attentively yes there are certainly shields and helmets he said i fear there is no doubt they have overtaken oswald's levies and have made them prisoners wolf shook his head they never take prisoners you know i fear they have slain them all and possessed themselves of their arms and clothes in no other way can there be saxon shields and helmets among them by saint nicholas osgod exclaimed it's too bad that we should be standing here doing nothing why doesn't Llewellyn attack us instead of keeping his men there gaping at the castle, because at present he can do nothing and is not fool enough to throw away hundreds of lives. besides he must know that his mother and children are in our hands. Presently, a white flag was raised amongst the Welsh Wolfe had expected this and had ordered a white cloth to be held in readiness to raise in reply as soon as this flew out to the wind. Three men were seen to advance with the flag towards the foot of the road up to the castle. Wolf at once sent for the two interpreters to join him. "'Shall you let them come up, master?' Osgod asked. "'They are as treacherous as snakes. See how that boy led us astray in the bog?' "'You cannot get that boy out of your head,' Osgod, Wolf laughed. There is no conceivable way which three men could recapture this castle. There is nothing for them to learn. They know its strength and everything connected with it, and they can see for themselves that we have destroyed the bridge. I shall be glad to hear what they have to say. Llewellyn himself is most likely one of the number." The little party mounted the road until they stood on the platform from which the bridge started. One of them was a tall figure, dressed in armour and with long black hair, flowing down from under his helmet over his shoulders. Wulf, at once, from the descriptions he had heard of the chief's appearance, recognised him as Llewellyn Rhys. I would speak with the commander of the Saxons, who have in my absence taken my castle by treachery. I am the commander, Wulf said. The Welshman's fingers clenched, and he glanced furiously at the young Saxon. By a great show of effort, however, he restrained his passion, and said courteously, I am Llewellyn Rhys." to whom have i the pleasure of speaking i am wolf of staining prince i don't know altogether that i have taken your castle by treachery indeed i claim to have won it by fair fighting you went out with your force to attack me amongst the hills and during your absence i attacked and captured your castle i will do your garrison credit to say they fought bravely in spite of the surprise i would have gladly given them quarter but they refused my offers and save a few wounded whom I allowed the women to carry off, died to a man fighting bravely. No women were hurt or insulted, save those who took up arms and fought among the men, and it was no fault of ours that they were killed. Methinks that in your incursions into England you have not always shown the same mercy." Llewellyn was silent for a minute. He had indeed never shown any pity in his forays but had never expected that his castle and family would be in the hands of the Saxons. I learn, he said at last, from the women, that my mother and my children are alive in your hands, and I thank you for the honourable treatment I hear that they have received. They are safe and well, Wulf replied. We Saxons do not massacre women and children in cold blood. They will be honourably treated until I can hand them over to the care of Earl Gerth. will doubtless send them to England as hostages. I shall try to win back my castle, the said. May I be sure that whatever happens they will be safe? You may. Even were you forcing your way into the castle, I will guarantee that no hair of their heads shall be injured. And now, Prince, it is my turn to question. I see Saxon helmets and shields among your followers. Whence come they?" A cloud passed over Llewellyn's face. He had not reckoned on their being observed from the castle. Concealment was now out of the question, and he said boldly, "'I defeated a party of your countrymen this morning. They came with hostile intent into my territory, and they have been destroyed.' Although he had expected the answer, Wolfe was shocked at the confirmation of his fears. Llewellyn, indeed, had fallen on Oswald's levies, and annihilated them soon after daybreak having no idea that a party had separated from them during the night he was returning exulting in the idea that he had destroyed the whole of the invaders when the news had reached him of the capture of his castle Wulf was silent it is the fortune of war he said gravely it is not to me that you have to reckon for the dead but with earl gurth for whom i hold this castle llewellyn made no reply but with a wave of his hand turned and went down the hill again I am even more than before convinced, Osgod, that there is a secret passage. I was watching him closely when the interpreter told him that I should hand his mother and children over to Girth. He pressed his lips together, and his face lighted up with exultation for a moment. What do you think he came here for, master? He came here to assure himself, if possible, that their lives would not be sacrificed in the event of his attacking. "'It's a pity you told him that they would be safe,' Osgod said. "'But they will be safe, and even if we are surprised and slain, I would not that Llewellyn should say that it was only the suddenness of his attack that saved their lives. I will place two of our best men at their door, with orders that, come what may, they are to prevent anyone from entering.' "'Well, I don't think it will come to that. Should the passage enter into the castle, as, if it exists, I have no doubt it does, we shall be prepared to deal with him. If it opens elsewhere we shall have all our force save a few sentries assembled, and though all the walls fall into their hands, we ought to be able to hold it successfully till Girth arrives to our rescue." Wolf returned to the castle, and then joined Beorn at his post on the wall facing the wood. He communicated to him his ideas as to the probable existence of a secret passage. "'We must provide a mode of retreat for your men on guard here, Beorn, in case the Welsh enter by either of these yards instead of by the castle. These flanking towers at the angles of the walls cut off all passage. We will construct bridges with two or three planks across these towers, so that your sentries can retreat from the rear wall to the next,' and again on to the inner wall. The doors between the courtyards shall be closed, so that should they enter either of these outer courts they will be delayed, and your men will have plenty of time to join us in defence of the last wall. However, I am convinced the castle itself will be the scene of action. Five sentries will be enough to place on this wall. I will put two on each of the cross walls, so that if your men give the alarm, it will be passed along speedily. I shall remove the last plank of the bridge at nightfall and have osgod and four men in the turret and two on the wall above them we shall therefore have fifty-five men in the castle and that should be ample they can keep watch and watch so there will be over twenty-five men under arms and ready to throw themselves upon the welsh wherever they may enter these arrangements were carried out at ten o'clock all lights were extinguished save a torch burning in each room on the ground floor the floors and walls had been carefully examined and sounded but nothing suspicious had been discovered four men were told off to each room except the great hall where twenty were gathered in reserve half were to keep watch but all were to lie down the orders to those who were to keep awake were strict if they heard a noise or saw a stone move they were to keep silent until two or three men had stepped out then they were to give the alarm leap up and throw themselves upon them were the alarm given he said before they fairly issued out the stone might be moved back again and it would give us immense trouble before we could demolish it or find the secret of the spring therefore let them get a footing first from time to time either beorn or wolf got up and went noiselessly round the different rooms to see that the watch was vigilant. As had been arranged, each of those on guard raised a hand as they entered a room, so as not to show that they were awake. Wolfe did not expect that any attempt would be made before midnight. After that hour he sat in a corner of the dais, leaning as if asleep, but with his eyes wandering round the room, watching every stone, and his ears listening for the faintest sound. He had no feeling of sleepiness whatever, his senses being all strung up to the highest pitch. From time to time he held up a hand, and ten others were at once elevated, showing that the watchers were as vigilant as himself. It was, he thought, about one o'clock when he heard a faint creaking sound. It did not seem to him to be in the hall itself, but in a room adjoining it, the doors having all been left open. He rose to his feet, touched Beorn, who lay a pace or two away, and stole noiselessly out, grasping his sword in his hand. He stopped before he got to the open door of the next room, and listened. All seemed perfectly quiet. He stood motionless, until a minute later there was a sudden shout, followed almost instantly by a clash of arms. With a shout to his followers, Wolf ran into the room. Four Saxons were on their feet and were attacking three men, who, as he entered, were joined by a fourth from behind. He and Beorn threw themselves into the fray, just as one of the Saxons fell with his head cloven by a sweeping blow from the tall figure opposed to him. One after another, in rapid succession, the Welsh poured in from a narrow opening, but the Saxons rushed up in overwhelming numbers. There was a brief, fierce fight and the Welsh were slain or overpowered. The men who last emerged turned to fly, but meeting those crowding up from behind were unable to do so. Others ran in, only to be cut down as soon as they appeared. A sound of fierce shouting and angry struggle came through the opening. When no more showed themselves, Wulf called for torches, and a dozen were soon at hand. Seizing one, he passed through the narrow opening. A winding staircase met his view, with Beorn and some Saxons following close behind him, he descended for a considerable distance. Then he found himself in a low and narrow passage, and following this for twenty yards stepped out into the open air. "'We need do no more to-night, Beorn,' he said. We will see where this comes out and block it up in the morning, though they are not likely to try again. We can sleep now without fear of interruption. His first step was to examine the bodies of the fallen Welshman. He had recognised in the tall man with whom he had crossed swords, Llewellyn Rhys and found him lying beneath four of his followers, who had stood over him and defended him to the last. He was glad to find that the Welsh prince still lived, and directed that he should be at once carried to a room, and that every attention should be shown him. None of the other fourteen Welshmen who had fallen showed any signs of life. Ordering their bodies to be carried out in the courtyard, Wulf placed four men on guard at the upper opening of the secret passage. There they were to be relieved every hour. He then went out and saw to the relief of the sentries on the walls, and called down on Osgod that the attack had been made and repulsed. He then went back and slept soundly till daybreak. On going to the walls he learned that there had been a great commotion down in the valley. Fierce shouts and loud wailing cries, and a confused sound of running and talking had been heard. At daybreak the Welsh were still there, and their fires had been lighted. One party was seen to march away as soon as it was light, but others arrived, and their numbers appeared about the same as on the previous evening. THERE WAS NO GENERAL MOVEMENT, BUT IT COULD BE SEEN THAT THEY GATHERED IN CLUSTERS AND LISTENED TO MEN WHO ADDRESSED THEM WITH ANIMATED GESTURES. THEY DON'T KNOW WHAT TO DO, WOLF SAID TO Osgod, WHOM HE HAD JOINED IN THE TURRET. THEY BELIEVE THEIR CHIEF TO BE DEAD. THEY KNOW THAT HIS MOTHER AND CHILDREN ARE PRISONERS IN OUR HANDS. THEY CAN HAVE LITTLE HOPE OF CAPTURING THIS PLACE, WHICH THEY BELIEVE TO BE IMPREGNABLE, TO OPEN ATTACK. AT PRESENT THEY MUST BE WITHOUT A LEADER and yet they must be so animated by a spirit of hate and revenge, and by the desire to wipe out their humiliation by retaking this place, that they will not stir from in front of it." As he spoke a messenger came from Beorn, saying that the Welsh were pouring arrows and javelins from the hill upon his sentries on the walls, and that these were unable to show a head above the parapet. In one of the sheds a large quantity of hides had been found and taking a party laden with them, Wulf proceeded to the wall at the rear. Here he directed that the ladders that were still lying there to be cut up into lengths of eight feet. These were fixed at intervals upon the parapet, and a cord fastened along the top. The men engaged in the operations being protected by the shields of their comrades from the rain of missiles from the trees. Hides were thrown over the ropes and these hid those on the wall from the view of the enemy while they themselves could peep out from time to time between the hides to see that no preparations were being made for an attack the secret passage was next investigated it was found that the opening was about half-way down the rock and that the assailants must have climbed up by a path that a goat could scarce traverse Wolfe set a party to work to carry down stones from the courtyard and to block up the passage solidly for ten feet from the opening, a sentry being posted on the wall above. After the erection of the shelter of hides the Welsh only sent an occasional javelin from the trees, but by the loud yells there were from time to time raised there was no doubt they were still there in force. "'It is evident they are going to besiege us, Beorn,' Wolf said, when they sat down to breakfast together. The question is, are we to remain here, until rumour carries the report of our capture of the place, to Girth, or shall we dispatch messengers to him? As you yourself said yesterday, the messengers could never get away, Wolf. I would give a year's revenue if we could do so, for it may be a long time before news comes to Girth's ears. He may possibly hear of the annihilation of Oswald's force, for any Welsh woman taken captive might mention that in triumph but they would certainly say nothing of such a grievous blow to the Welsh cause as the capture of Porthwyn and the death of Llewellyn in an attempt to recapture it. Girth, therefore, naturally supposing that we had been involved in Oswald's disaster, may abandon all idea of moving against this place until the greater part of the country was reduced to obedience. I see, Beorn, that the difficulty of a messenger getting through would be indeed enormous. The Welsh must know that we are but a small band, and that our first aim would be to communicate with Girth. You may be sure, therefore, they will keep a vigilant guard all round the place at night to see that no messenger makes his way out. Our two interpreters do not know anything like enough Welsh to pass as natives. None of our people know a word of the language. It would be sending anyone to almost certain death. I think we must be content to depend upon ourselves. Gerth is sure to learn the news sooner or later, for it will make a great stir all through the country. I have just seen Llewellyn. He is very sorely wounded. I think it would be a good thing to let the Welsh know that he is in our hands. It will render them more chary of attacking us. We might hang out a flag of truce, and when they come up in reply, tell them that he is alive but sorely wounded and that they may send up a leech who would better attend to his wounds than we can do. This was accordingly done. Two Welshmen of rank came up to the broken bridge and were informed that the prince was sorely wounded, and that a leech would be allowed to enter to attend upon him. An hour later a man with a boy carrying a large basket came up the hill and crossed the plank into the turret. The basket, which contained various herbs and medicaments, was taken from the boy who was then sent back again, while the leech was taken up to the room where Llewellyn was lying in the care of his mother and her maids. Three days passed without any change. The force in the valley was seen to be considerably diminished. No hostile demonstration had taken place, but twenty men always remained in the courtyard in the rear, in readiness to run up the wall in case the sentries gave an alarm. On the fourth morning, just as day was breaking, a man ran into the castle with the news that the Welsh were attacking the wall. Beorn and Wolfe sprung to their feet, and with every man except those on duty as sentries, ran off to the scene of the attack. That it was a serious assault was evident by the wild yells and shouts that were heard. Wolfe ran up the stairs to the wall. A storm of missiles was striking against the hides. Many of them failed to penetrate, but others did so, and several of the men were lying wounded under shelter of the parapet, while the rest were hurling down javelins between the openings of the hides. "'What are they doing?' he asked a sub-officer in command of the party. "'They are preparing to scale the wall, my lord. They have numbers of ladders.' Wolfe was about to look out between the hides, but the officer exclaimed, "'Do not risk your life, my lord. You can see down without danger and he pushed the lower side of one of the skins from the wall, so that Wolf could look down without being seen by the Welsh archers. The fossy in the rock and the narrow platform at the foot of the wall were alike crowded with foes, who were planting a number of ladders side by side. These were strongly constructed, and were each wide enough for two men to mount abreast. Eight or ten of these ladders were already planted against the wall, and the enemy were climbing up them. Wolf turned, and waving his sword, shouted to the men running into the courtyard from the walls and castle to hasten up. Already a dozen had joined him, and scarce had these placed themselves along the battlements when the heads of the Welshmen appeared above it. For a minute or two it seemed that these would overmaster the defence. Several succeeded in crossing the parapet, but they were either cut down or cast headlong into the courtyard. By this time the whole of the Saxons, save the guard in the turret by the bridge, were on the wall, and were able to form a close line along the parapet against which the ladders were placed. The Welsh fought with an utter disregard of life. As fast as those at the top were cut down or hurled backwards, others took their place. So closely did they swarm up the ladders, that several of these broke with their weight, killing many of those clustered below as well as those on the rungs. But for an hour there was no pause. It was well for the defenders that they had the protection of the line of hides, and were therefore screened from the arrows of the bowmen on the hill. But these soon ceased to shoot, as many of their comrades were hit by their missiles, while they were unable to see whether the arrows had any effect whatever upon the hidden defenders at length the leaders of the assailants saw that the task could not be achieved and gave the signal by the blowing of cow horns that the attack should cease but so furious were their followers that many disregarded the summons and continued their efforts to gain a footing upon the wall or at least to kill one of the defenders for some time after the main body had withdrawn as soon as the last of these was killed the garrison hurled the ladders backwards and then gave a shout of triumph which was answered by renewed yells of defiance by the Welsh. "'It's been a hard fight,' Beorn said, as he removed his helmet. "'It has indeed. It was a well-planned attack, and was nearly successful. We ought to have had a stronger guard there, but I did not think that they would venture to attack at daylight, nor that they could have so quickly run forward and placed their ladders. Had we been but a minute later in arriving here, they would have gained this wall and the courtyard they would indeed have got no further but their success would have so excited them that we should have had to fight night and day what has been our loss five of the men were killed many of the others had received severe wounds on the head and shoulders from the knives of their assailants and had it not been for the protection afforded by the leathern helmets and jerkins the number of killed would have been very much larger "'I would as lief fight with a troop of wildcats!' exclaimed Osgod, who, as soon as he saw there was no movement down on the plain, had run up with half his little garrison to join in the defence of the wall. As he tried to staunch a deep wound that extended from his ear to his chin, over and over again I saw a shock-head coming up above the wall, and before I had time to take a fair blow at it the man would hurl himself over upon me like a wild animal. Three times I was knocked down, and I am no chicken either. If it had not been for my comrades on each side it would have gone hard with me. I was able to return the service several times, but had the Welsh been imps they could not have been more active or more fierce. There must be a hundred lying slain along here or in the courtyard. I do not wonder that Oswald's men were all killed by them, though after our previous fights I held them in but small respect." It is a different thing, Osgord Beorn said. In the field we always had the advantage from our order and our discipline, but here it was man against man. We had the advantage of position and they of numbers, but discipline went for nothing on either side, and I doubt we should have done as well as they did had we been the assailants. I am ready to own that, Osgod agreed. I like to fight with my feet on firm ground and should make but a poor figure balanced on the top of a ladder. When the tumult in the wood had died away, Wolfe raised a white flag, and ordered one of the men who spoke Welsh to shout at the enemy that they might approach without molestation, to remove their wounded and dead from the foot of the wall, and also said that the Saxon leaders desired to speak to an officer of rank. Two of these came out from the trees. Hitherto the interpreter cried with a loud voice, "'My lords, the noble thanes, Beon of Ferrum and Wolf of Staining." have given the most honourable treatment to your chief Llewellyn Apris, wounded and a prisoner in their hands, and to his family. Nor have they altered that treatment while you were attacking our walls, but they bid me warn you and all others in arms against the authority of our sovereign Lord the King, that henceforth they will hold them as hostages, and their lives will be forfeited if any fresh attack be made upon the castle." three days passed without any further acts of hostility by the welsh at the end of that time llewellyn was sufficiently recovered to sit up supported by pillows on his couch he had already heard of the defeat with terrible slaughter of the attempt of his countrymen to recapture the castle and of the warning that had been given the welsh that if an attack was renewed the lives of himself and his family would be forfeited beorn and wulf paid him a visit as soon as they heard he was in a condition to talk to them. Prince, Wulf said through his interpreter, it is, you must see, hopeless for your followers to attempt to recapture the castle. The bridge is destroyed, the secret passage by which you entered blocked up, and we can resist any attack upon the rear wall. We have shown you and yours a mercy such as you would certainly not have extended to English men and women under similar circumstances and grieved as we should be to be obliged to proceed to extremities with prisoners yet were the castle again attacked and were we to see that there was a prospect of its being recaptured we should not hesitate to slay you as it would be treachery to the king to allow so formidable an enemy as yourself to regain his freedom your cause is hopeless harold tostig and gurth are carrying fire and sword through your valleys and your people will have to choose between submission and death why should so hopeless a struggle continue girth will be here shortly and then the fate that has befallen the districts already subdued will light upon yours surely it will be better for yourself and your people that this should be averted this can only be done by sending your orders to your followers to scatter to their homes and to lay down their arms we will at once in that case send a messenger to the earl to tell him that the district has submitted I must request that in order that the message shall reach him, you shall bid two officers of rank to accompany our messenger to Girth's camp. We giving them our undertaking, that they shall be allowed to leave it unmolested." "'Your offer tallies with my own intentions,' Llewellyn said. Had I been free, I would have resisted to the last. But as a prisoner, and with my mother and children in your hands, I am powerless. My harper tells me that fully four hundred of my followers fell in the attack, and with my stronghold in your power, my tribesmen without a leader, and your armies desolating the land, I see that further resistance here would but add to the misfortunes of my people. I am ready therefore to send down my harper and doctor, to bid four of my chiefs to come up here, under your safe conduct. I shall lay the matter before them and tell them that I being a prisoner can no longer give them orders, but shall point out to them that in my opinion further resistance can bring but terrible disasters upon the district. This on their return they will lay before their men, and if, as I trust, these will agree to scatter to their homes, they will furnish the escort you desire for your messenger." Two hours later three of the chiefs summoned arrived, the fourth having fallen in the assault, they had a private interview with Llewellyn, and then left. A great meeting was held down in the valley, and in the afternoon the three chiefs and six others came up to the castle, and formally made their submission before Beorn and Wulf, and besought them to send a messenger to the Earl, praying him to forgive past offences, and to have mercy on the people. An hour later, two of the Saxons, bearing a letter from Beorn and Wulf to Gurth. STARTED UNDER AN ESCORT PROVIDED BY THE CHIEFS END OF CHAPTER ELEVEN